to welcome those who are joining us online. Um, for the last, really for about the last four or five weeks, we've been talking about the Lord's Supper. We were talking about, um, you know, in the fullness of time, you know, just um, in preparation for Christmas. But uh, we, um, today we come back to that series. We still have maybe three, four more weeks in this series we're calling the Glorious Church. And the key verse that we're looking at is from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, speaking of Jesus, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Or some translations will actually say a glorious church, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And we've been talking about how Jesus is coming back for a church filled with glory, filled with holiness, filled with power. Now, we're not there yet. In fact, sometimes when we look around the church, we think, oh, we've got a long ways to go. Uh, but we can have confidence that Jesus is indeed building his church. In fact, I think one reason why there's a lot of sifting going on, a lot of purifying, a lot of pu pruning is because Jesus is at work building his church. So we want to talk more about that today. So before we kind of get started with what I really want to talk about, I'd just like to talk just a couple minutes about how should or maybe how will the world view us? And there's really two things, two sides that at first seem almost contradictory, but they're really not. First of all, as the church becomes more with glory and the power of God's spirit, the world is going to recognize the love that we have for one another, especially. John 13, 34 and 35, we've talked about this many, many times, but it talks about Jesus is saying to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This will be what we'll be known for. And by the way, in the early church, the early Christians were known for their agape love to one another. Uh, what one such historian, he was Jewish but wasn't a Christian, Josephus, he writes about this continually. He says, yeah, you know, I'm not one of these Christians, but one thing everyone agrees about, they love one another. And that's going to be restored. Now, the other side of that is the world's going to hate us, too. In fact, in the same chapter, just two chapters later in John 15, maybe starting in verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, if it's, it's clear. If we're still part of the world, the world's not going to hate us. 
But the more we kind of withdraw from the world in the sense of the world's actions and attitudes and, and things, the world is going to hate us. Verse 20, because the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all things, all these things they would do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So both of these are true. On one hand, people are going to say there's something about those Christians. There's something about the church that they're drawn to. But also at the same time, there's light going to be exposing darkness. And not always, but often when darkness is exposed, what happens? It reacts. And so we're going to see that too. So both of these two things we will see. That people will admire our love, our behavior. They're going to say, these are godly people. But they'll also hate us at the same time. And you know what? We all like to be liked. None of us like to be disliked. And we certainly don't like to be hated or persecuted. But this will happen. Now, one other thing I should probably say, several times in the New Testament, we're given a warning that just because we're going to be hated, we need to make sure that we're hated because of the right reasons. Sometimes Christians think, oh, I'm being persecuted for my faith. And it's not that way at all. You know, maybe it's because you're being obnoxious. Maybe you're being arrogant. Maybe you're looking down on others. Maybe we just freely speak our mind. In other words, there's no self-control. Maybe sometimes there's greed controlling our life. That's suffering for the wrong reason. I can remember a couple times, not here, but in a church. Um, I don't want to kind of say too much, but anyway, because you never know who's learning. But I can remember several times when people would come up to me, I'm just being persecuted at work, you know, and, uh, you know, they just don't like me because I'm a Christian. And, uh, and, uh, and then maybe three months later, they've lost another job because I've been persecuted. And I can remember at least two occasions, me kind of asking around to maybe some fellow employees, they weren't being fired for being a Christian, even though they were a Christian and maybe they were even outspoken about it. They were more fired for coming in late, not doing their job right, you know, being obnoxious, things like that. So we got to be careful that we are persecuted for the right reasons. Does that make sense? First Peter three. And again, that's not anybody here. First Peter three, verse 13. It says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and to keep a good conscience so that in the thing that you are slandered, those who revalue good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 
For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. In other words, it's going to happen. It's not going to happen all the time. But let's respond in a godly way. The next chapter, First uh, Peter 4, verse 14. If you are reviled for the sake of Christ, you are blessed. You know, it's, it's amazing how many times the scriptures say that. You know, we're blessed when we're insulted, when we suffer because of his name. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. Well, today I would like to talk about, and next week too, some outstanding qualities that the church should be known for. Qualities that are going to mark us different from the rest of the world, really from everybody else. These are counterculture qualities. In other words, they run against the culture of today. And I might add, we, these qualities are increasingly running against the currents of today's world. They're going to make us look more and more different if we embrace these. And they could probably be summarized by how we live, how we love, and how we respond. Okay? How we live, how we love, and how we respond. So I'm going to mention four of these qualities today and then a few more next week. Let me say something else. These are qualities that for the most part are impossible to fake. In other words, you have to have Jesus reigning and living in your heart for you to be able to do this. The first two, I'm going to go, by, I'm going to go through pretty quickly because we've already kind of talked about these. Uh, actually in this series, and we've talked about them a lot. But first of all, our love for one another. I have to include that because that's probably the main one. And again, John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. What does it say? As I have loved you, so also you should love one another. And by this will the whole world, all men, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we have been called to this agape love. And what's agape love? I think we all know that. It's a love that only Christians can experience. Why is that? Because it's God's love. And if you read First, First John, it says very clearly that only those who have been truly born again can love with this agape love. In fact, this agape love becomes, if you read the New Testament, is the defining characteristic of a true follower of Christ. And yet, so many times it's kind of presented as an option or maybe even more as an is an ideal that's really impossible, but, you know, it's, it's nice to think about. Yes, it is impossible, unless 
we have Christ reigning in our hearts. In fact, you could say how we love is really a measure of how much Jesus is reigning in our hearts. And we don't like to think about it that way, but that's, if you study the New Testament, it's clear that's the case. Agape love cannot be faked. The command to love one another is all through the New Testament. In fact, one place it says the whole law is summed up by what? One word, love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest is what? Love. The chapter also talks about how we can have all sorts of gifts of prophecy. We can have faith so as to move mountains. We can have all knowledge. We can understand perfectly God's word. By the way, these are all good things, by the way. We can give up our bodies to be burned. We, we can give all our possessions to the poor. But if we don't have this agape love, it doesn't matter, right? It's pretty clear. A second quality, and we've talked about this, is our oneness in the spirit. John 17, verse 23, it says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. And then it tells us why. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them, even as you have loved me. In other words, when we are perfected in our love and unity toward one another, the world's going to know. Just like it knows us by our love, it also knows us by our unity. And that's why we've talked about this before, how we need to be diligent to be one in spirit, one in heart, one in soul, one in mind. Actually, in a previous week in this series, we looked at Psalm 133, about how what? How blessed are the people who live together in unity. And God promises anointing and blessing. Actually, the last verse says, for there the Lord commands the blessing. We saw in Matthew 18 that when we begin to agree together in prayer, there's a new power in our prayer life together. That's spiritual unity. So we've already talked about these two a lot. And, um, and, but there's two more qualities I want to talk about today that these two also separate us from the world. And these two are also qualities that cannot be imitated or faked. They're possible only with Jesus reigning in our lives. The first one is loving our enemies. You might say, wow, that's a, I never really understood that. Well, most of us don't, especially if we're thinking in our human mind, you know. Uh, uh, but this is to be one of those defining qualities of a true follower of Christ. And a quality of the church that Jesus is coming back for. And let me say this, I, it doesn't always make sense. I can't always explain it. 
you know. There's always some people who kind of come up with some. But what about this situation? And I admit there's some situations where there's perhaps other passages that maybe is going to kind of frame this in a little bit different way. But we cannot escape the fact that a foundation of the way we relate to one another and we relate to people around the world is that we've got to love our enemies. We, we, we can't escape that, you know. And again, it can only be done if Jesus is reigning in my life because otherwise I can't love my enemies. Let's look at Luke 6, 27 through 28. <laughs> this is Jesus speaking. And he's pretty clear. It's not something, well, how do you think we interpret this? Well, it's pretty clear to me. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Bless them. And pray for them. Is it that what that says? I don't think any translation kind of says anything but that, you know. It's, it's loud, clear. We can't explain the way. I mean, it's like, wow, you know. Um, you know, loving our enemies means doing good to them, blessing them, praying for them. Let's go to verse 31. He says, he, he's continuing the same thing. He says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Kind of the golden rule, right? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And that's true. And sometimes we can kind of deceive ourselves. Well, I am a loving person to most people, especially those who love me back. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that the love that we need to have for others extends beyond just those who love us back. It extends so far, it even includes our enemies. Let's kind of keep reading. Verse 33. If you do good for those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. You know, they kind of have an expression in the world. You scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. I'm not sure how that kind of comes out in Spanish, but it's, if I do something good for you, you do something good for me. And we kind of get along in this world, okay? You know, that's kind of the unspoken. But he's saying that, you know, that's the way sinners do it. The world does that. And then he kind of says, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But you love your enemies. Do good speaking to your enemies, and lend, expecting nothing in return. For your reward will be great, for you'll be sons of the Most High. For he himself is ungrateful, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. And that's true. God is merciful to a lot of people. A lot of times we feel like, Lord, you're being too merciful to this person or to this group of people. You know, can't you kind of bring a little bit of your judgment? You know, but that's God's nature and he wants us to have his nature. <clears throat> now, I know you can always kind of think, but what about this or what about that? 
This is foundational on how we need to view things, view people. Let's look at Matthew 5. Jesus is talking here too. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 43. <coughs> you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And by the way, that's what the world says, right? You know, listen, you, you know, try to love your neighbor, the ones who are kind of nice, the ones you have to kind of live with. But as far as your enemy, it's okay to hate them. In fact, you probably should. But what? Jesus says, but I say to you, he raises the standard, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus has another message for his followers. Love them, pray for them. Again, these are the words of Jesus. Paul picks this up. Romans 12. And let's look at verse 14. We could, we could look at a lot of other verses, but... Uh, um, oops. Verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. See, we've been called to bless and not to curse. And that includes even those who persecute us. Again, we are to bless. We are to pray for. We're to do good to our enemies, our enemies, and we are to love our enemies. Now, this may seem impossible. But if Christ is reigning in our hearts, I know I keep saying that, then there will be grace there'll be an inner power that we'll be able to do this because that's the way Jesus lived this life. I mean, even on the cross, Lord, forgive those, you know, who are doing this to me. And he had just gone through a very agonizing torture. But it is hard. And I think this is something that we must learn to encourage one another in. So many times our encouragement is to talk about how we can get back at someone or how, you know, we're just well, it's only right for you to feel this way. Well, what we're really saying, according to the human nature that we were born with, yeah, it, it seems right to do this. But we need to be encouraging people to go beyond this and to encourage one another. And. As we look at the last days, we will have many opportunities to put this into practice. In fact, the scriptures say there's even going to be an increased amount of martyrs. And we, we don't need to, we don't like to talk about that or think about it, but it is what the scriptures say. So as the church becomes more holy and filled with inner power and has more glory, and we begin to embrace these qualities that are, make, that are going to make us stand aside from someone else, you know, we, um, we're going to make a difference. But we've got to learn to love our enemies and to bless them, do good to them, and to pray for them. And like I said, there's going to be many opportunities in the future. Okay, 
the next quality, and this is going to be the last one we're going to talk about, and it's very similar to loving your enemies, but it's not taking revenge. While we're in Romans 12, let's look at verse 17. Never, I actually have that kind of circled, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, sometimes it's not possible, but as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all men. And then he has the second never. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but, let, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I know this sounds really, really impossible. But this is what God's word tells us. We, um, we call this different things. We talk, sometimes we say, it's just a matter of getting even. Or settling the score. Or getting revenge. But twice we see the word never. Never pay back evil for evil. And never take your own revenge. Now God says, listen, I know that evil brings upon judgment and consequences. But he's telling us we should not worry about that. Why? Because he's going to do it. And he knows how to do it a lot better than we do. But it takes trust. And sometimes, as we read in places like Psalm 37, it seems like the evildoers are getting away with so much. And that's because we're kind of looking at it in the span of two months or two years or five years or whatever. God sees things in an eternal point of view. And he is going to bring necessary judgment. We can trust for that. But for us, we are called to a higher standard. And that is, we do not take revenge. I especially like verse 21. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You could put it this way. One of those things is going to happen. Either we're going to be overcome by evil, and the evil is getting revenge, or we're going to overcome evil with good. Good has that possibility. First Peter, chapter 3, verse 9. We're instructed not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. And let's face it, someone insults us. I mean, it can be someone we don't even know, maybe in a grocery store. What's the first thing we want to do? Kind of return an insult for an insult. But giving a blessing instead. That's what we're called to. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We are not called to give insult to insult, but rather to give a blessing. 
this is one of the ways that we are going to be different from everybody else. We're not to curse. And by the way, our words can carry a curse without our using a curse word. We know that, right? Um, there's many. I mean, that's probably another message. But um, do we need to ask ourselves, do our words carry a curse? Maybe in subtle ways. You know, you'll always be an idiot or you'll always be this way. Or there's a lot of things that we can say that really, if you examine it, are really a curse. And the thing about a curse, they always have a boomerang effect. Does everyone know what a boomerang is? You know, it's uh, I think of the, the Aborigines in Australia. It's kind of a, a wooden disc-like a thing, but it's curved in such a way that if you throw it in such a way, I can throw it over there and it'll actually come back to me. You, you have to be good at doing it. I remember having one as a kid and it took me a while and then it sort of came back. But, but I remember kind of seeing, it wasn't a video, but it was something of, a documentary once or something where, yeah, I mean, they, they can be really accurate. And when we curse, it always comes back. It's biblical. It's usually phrased something like this. Whatever we sow, we will reap. So if we sow insults to people and curses, it's going to come back to us. It's a principle in God's word. I was recently reading an article describing the contents of a, of a book about revenge that just came out. And, and I do this sometimes. Sometimes I don't have time to read a book. I mean, I might be interested. I just don't have time. But I can usually find a four or five page article that tells me the main points. And uh, this book talks about how in many cultures, Revenge is not only acceptable, but it's considered virtuous, heroic, noble. Now, I should probably say cultures that do not have a solid biblical Christian influence are the ones susceptible to this, you know. Um, and, um, and I think this book gives a lot of examples, but it's considered a noble thing. Those countries, there have been other cultures who have a strong Christian influence that, you know, yeah, there's revenge, but forgiveness, overlooking offenses, making peace is the noble thing. But this book does a lot of just tracing the history of revenge in the United States. And it kind of said it's always been there. And they give a lot of examples, even in this article. And I guess that's because of the sinful nature that we have. But it was always kept in check and it wasn't viewed as something good. However, in the last 20 years or so, maybe 25 years or so, there's been a rapid acceleration in our society of revenge. It's being accepted now. It's being deemed normal. And it's even being celebrated. And of course, we can see revenge openly and proudly displayed in social media. 
We see it with celebrities. You know, just this past week, I, I don't even know, I'm not even sure who the celebrities were, but two celebrities kind of got into a, a tweeting war and they were just saying some awful things. And because I was talking about this, I was looking at it, I thought, yeah. But, you know, and, and people enjoy kind of reading it. In fact, I think there's one of the parties responded with something and it's the 10th most popular tweet ever because people like that, you know. And of course, with politicians, we see it all the time. But sadly, this revenge has trickled down to our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, our families now. And revenge has become how we get along in the world. In fact, everybody else does this. And so for us to survive, we've got to do it too. That's become the mentality, and even among a lot of Christians. Revenge is tearing our society apart. And I'm afraid our society is on a course of no return. It probably will never return back. But as I was reading this, I was thinking, but this is a moment for the church. Will we be different? Because you know that this revenge culture that's it's, it's a poison that's kind of poisoning our society, poisoning relationships, poisoning everything. You know it's causing heartache inside. And if we choose to live beyond that, do you think we will stand out as being different? Yes. Now, we may be criticized for it, but we'll also, we'll, people will also be attracted to it. They'll want to know... How, why aren't you doing this? Don't you know you have to do this in order to survive? No, because Jesus is my Lord. He's my protector. He's my Savior. He's the one that guides me. Are we going to be different? Are we just going to slide into the same patterns of the world? Revenge is a poison that Satan wants to even infiltrate churches and into our, Christ and into our personal lives. Revenge, being offended, betrayal will only get worse. Actually, those of you who are going through the uh, bait of Satan, I think in chapter uh, 2, it starts off with a passage in Matthew 24 about the last days. And uh, let me just read it. Verse 10. At that time, many will fall away, or literally it means will be offended and will betray one another and hate one another. This is one of the signs of the last times. Many prophets, false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's loves, and it actually says agape love, will grow cold. It's what's going to happen in this world more and more. I mean, there's other passages, you know, where Jesus says brother's going to betray brother. Father's going to be against children, children against father. You know, uh, it's, it's the future of this world. There's going to be much more revenge of being offended, betrayal, hatred, because all those things, once you kind of bite into one of them, it just, 
all, it just invites all these other things. And then bitterness and resentment, that's the world that we're living in. And by the way, we've got to teach our children that this is a world in which we're called to respond differently. We could probably say a lot more about this, but I just want to kind of say this. This is going to be one of the biggest challenges as Christians and as a church we're going to face in the future. But God is calling us to a new level. And it's important for us to know that we can and we ought to be different. And people will notice and they'll be drawn into the kingdom because of that. Okay, just in conclusion, first of all, I'd just like to say, if in house churches, we're going through this bait of Satan, because of the holidays, we've kind of started, but we really haven't, I don't think any of the house churches have really kind of just really gotten very far into it. I invite you, I encourage you to, strongly encourage you to join in one of these house churches, at least for the next several months. I believe that this is a book that it's got, it just has a lot of stories about offenses and betrayal and resentment and bitterness and how we can get free. I feel like as a church and all churches, we need to kind of get a handle on this. One message isn't going to change us. So I encourage you to get involved in a house church. And then next week, we're going to talk about three other qualities that are going to mark us different from the rest of the world. Let's pray. Father, you have placed us in a world and a generation where there's a lot of things that we don't like, like revenge. There's going to be more enemies. But yet you've also placed us in a generation and a time of history where your church is going to explode with holiness, with glory, with power. And uh, the two go together. And Lord, prepare us. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to prepare our children for the day in which we are living. Give us grace in these things, Lord. Amen.